This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 32. I think we do a tremendous amount in organizations to focus on, for example, gratitude or mindfulness or things around physical health, but we're horrible at helping diagnose where stress is coming from in relationships or in knowing what connections matter to promote well-being today. And yet the mortality rates are crazy bad, right? And yet we'll go chase cholesterol medications and blood pressure pills down to the ends of the earth. And yet we'll ignore something that the results show is just as important, the quality of these connections and how we're navigating them. I think largely because we can't measure it and see it as well yet. I think that'll evolve. But I do think that there's a lot that HR could be taking on that could have a really disproportionate effect. What is a micro-stress and how are they impacting you professionally and personally? What can you do to reduce micro-stress in your organization and in your everyday life? Hi, I'm your host, J.P. Elliott. And this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. My guests this week are Rob Cross and Karen Dillon. Rob is the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College and the co-founder and director of the Connected Commons, a consortium of more than 150 leading organizations. For more than 20 years, Rob has studied the underlying networks of relationships within effective organizations and the collaborative practices of high performers. He is the author of Beyond Collaboration Overload, How to Work Smarter, Get Ahead and Restore Your Well-Being. Karen Dillon is the author and former editor of Harvard Business Review Magazine and co-founder of three books with Clay Christensen, including the New York Times bestseller, How Will You Measure Your Life? Rob and Karen have collaborated on a new and insightful book called The Micro-Stress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems and What to Do About It. Based on 300 in-depth interviews with high performers, Rob and Karen identify how micro-stresses are baked into our everyday lives in ways that slowly destroy our well-being and health. With many of us feeling more stressed and burnt out than ever before, this is an important topic for not only our organizations, but also for each of us. I highly recommend you pick up a copy of The Micro-Stress Effect, as it's full of actionable insights that will make a difference to you and your organization. Rob and Karen have also created the Micro-Stress Effect app, which is a free resource that will help you identify and reduce micro-stresses in your life. I put a link in the show notes so you can find that great app. In my conversation with Rob and Karen, we discussed what a microstress is and how it's impacting us in our everyday lives, how microstress is draining our capacity, depleting our emotions, and challenging our identity, why negative interactions have three to five times the impact of positive interactions, how to build resilience against microstress in our lives, and how managers can reduce microstress on their teams and why it will improve performance. Rob and Karen, thank you for joining us on the Future of HR podcast. How are you both doing? Doing great. Doing great. And obviously, you know, super great, grateful to be here. <laughs> well, we're really excited to talk to you about your new book, The Microstress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems and What to Do About It. That's probably the most important part, what to do about it. 
Rob, tell us a little more about your research and what led you to write this book. Sure. Yeah. So I'm lucky enough to, you know, work with the Connected Commons, a consortium of about 150 organizations now, and they have been sponsoring research into looking at high performers and understanding ways that they're collaborating that enable them to innovate and scale differently in today's hyper-connected world. And uh, had really gotten a lot of traction with that stream of research in the consortia. And then the members started pushing back a little bit about five or six years ago and saying, gosh, we'd like to also uh, think about success in organizations as thriving, you know, or, or well-being or career satisfaction, life satisfaction, not just the performance outcomes. And uh, so super lucky to be, you know, pushed uh, at a time five or six years ago when well-being wasn't as cool as it is right now <laughs> to say, you know, where and, and how do relationships uh, affect our, our well-being. And really the the takeoff point for us in that was there were so many books that were starting to come out that show that there is a deficit of quality connections in most people's lives today and that the impact's pretty significant. You know, the mortality rate is the equivalent if you're categorically lonely as smoking 15 packs of cigarette, 15 cigarettes a day, not packs, 15 cigarettes a day. Uh, and, you know, 26% greater mortality rate is associated with dementia, you know, blood pressure, all these other things. But the advice on what you do if you've fallen out of these groups as you've gotten busy with life, you know, your professional and personal side has taken off in your mid to late 30s, um, wasn't as rich. And so that was really what kind of triggered us to lean into saying, how can we use the analytics to understand ways that relationships affect uh, well-being that's a little bit different than looking at, say, gratitude or mindfulness. It's more about the relationships. Um, and then qualitatively, how can we really dive into a whole hundreds and hundreds of 90-minute interviews to understand how people are living their lives and navigating, you know, different elements of well-being. And you did over 300 interviews, 90-minute, 300 interviews for this research. Is that right? Yeah, it it, it, um, uh, it was a fascinating experience, you know, because the first 10 minutes, these were all highly successful people from great organizations. So as you can imagine, the first 10 minutes of every interview, it was rainbows and lollipops. You know, everything is great. Uh, life is good. And then you get down to minute 30 and cracks start to come in and 45 and 60. And, you know, as you go, some people actually ended up choking up at, at certain points going, I am really struggling uh, to hold it all together, both professionally and personally. And it's lives that they had created, you know, to keep up with different things they thought they had to do for their children or districts they needed to be in or uh, things they needed to do professionally. Um, but it, it, it really touches your soul, to be honest with you, to have that number of conversations at that level uh, to see how, you know, roughly 90% of the population was really struggling. Uh, yet what we also found is about 10% never went down that rabbit hole. <laughs> about 10% managed to kind of stay at a higher level and uh, those were the ones that we also got super interested in, right? To understand kind of how are they uh, doing things in, in, uh, in different ways uh, that promote well-being to me. That's really fascinating. What were you hoping to learn from those interviews? Well, I can give an answer and then Karen, uh, I want to uh, get Karen to jump in too. But with the initial framework for us was we were looking at what are the reasonable ways that relationships are likely to affect well-being. So for example, you know, financial wellness is a component typically as people talk about well-being. And we kind of pushed that out, not that it couldn't be related to relationships, but it wasn't going to be as direct a fact. So we really came down on they're looking at all the well-being work. There being four legitimate ways. You know, one is how connections affect our physical health, um, how they affect our, our sense of growth in and out of work, uh, how they affect our uh, sense of purpose in our lives and work. And then 
uh, resilience. You know, for example, how we get uh, resilience is not just a product of us, but how we tap into others. And so what led us into this was the, literally the first interview, you know, in all these we were doing lovely, you know, life science executive in London, lovely British accent. And, you know, I just started the interview off and I said, tell me about a time you were becoming more physically healthy, right? Whatever that meant to you. And I don't care what you did. What I really want to understand is what were the role of the connections around you, right? For getting you motivated, keeping you accountable, helping you, you know, be a different version of yourself. You know, we had all these questions on that. And so it, it started off as, you know, she chuckled and she said, Rob, I was the person in, in high school that dodged gym at every chance I could, right? And being, you know, kind of a, an intellectual and a couch potato worked for me up until my mid to late thirties, which is usually when it starts to falter. And my doctor gave me a stern warning, right? And said, you can't keep doing this. And so her solution was to walk around a park outside of her flat in London. And she started bumping into uh, a couple of the same people. So they started walking together at, at a time. And then that walk became a longer walk and a charity walk and then a charity run. And you flash forward 10 years when I was doing this very first interview and she was, um, you know, doing vacations with her husband where they would run a marathon first, would actually pick their vacations on where to run a marathon. And this is the couch potato, right? The Dodge gym in high school. And she said, you know, the identity of being a runner really helped me push back on work and keep work in perspective. But the real key was the uh, authenticity of the connections with very different people in my life. Suddenly I wasn't hanging out with life science executives. It was the mailman, an IT person. It was other people that brought perspective in my life and friendship and uh, other things that added dimensionality. But the real key, and I'll never forget it, you know, this interview is going 100 miles a minute, laughing, everybody's happy, having a great time. And about minute 45, I was like, well, what got you trapped to begin with? You know, and this interview that was going 100 miles an hour went down to nothing. And for like a minute, she just looked at me and she said, just life, you know, and, and couldn't really put her finger on one big stress that was causing the problems, you know, one toxic boss, one ailing parent. And so we dug in at that point and said, well, what are all these little moments look like for you? And then for several hundred more, right, to really start to understand uh, how stress is, is happening in a different way. What's, what's so interesting, I think the way that you and Karen have approached this, when we think about stress or well-being, maybe it's because we're an individualistic society like the United States, but it's always like back on me. Like I've, you know, it's the individual. I've got to figure out how I should be less stressed. I should do something different. And what you're really coming to say is it's actually our relationships and the connections that are having a big impact, at least on managing the stress that is in our lives. And so I think it's a really unique take that's, that's so important. Karen, what would you say, I guess, to help us define a micro stress? Because I think we all kind of know stress. What's a micro stress and how is that different than regular stress? So micro stress in our definition is something very specific. They're tiny moments of stress that are caused in routine interactions, everyday interactions with people in your personal and your professional life that are so brief and so baked into your everyday life that you literally barely you know, recognize them, like you, bar you barely know that it's happened to you. But cumulatively, the impact of those layers of micro stress that happen throughout a given day, week, month. Um, is really significant. It's really enormous. So when the just life ex explanation from that executive Rob was talking about, she's really talking about just having a life filled with micro stress that 
every single thing seems like it's no big deal. It's just life. You just have to get through these things that, that happen to you, these small stresses, these small moments of interaction that don't go perfectly well in some way. But the reality is they actually are taking a really big physiological toll on us and they're making us exhausted. They're making us not the best version of ourselves. So these things we almost don't see, don't recognize are happening to, happening to us are playing a really big role in our life. And the idea, I think that was so interesting, of looking at high performers, you would assume they they do it better than the rest of us. So even if these high performers are, are feeling it in such a profound way that we found throughout the research, you know, what hope is there for the rest of us? Because the rest of us maybe aren't even as good at juggling all the things that you have to juggle when you have microstresses hitting you all day long. I would just pick up on one idea too, when you mentioned the relationships earlier about, you know, having uh, well-being as a product of yourself versus seeing it as a product of the connections around you. It's a very similar idea with the micro stresses. You know, this is not just bad news on social media. You know, it's the fact that generally these things are coming at us through relationships and the fact that we may dislike somebody, we're frustrated with them, we're irritated right in that moment, it magnifies the effect a little bit you know, than something that's disembodied. And then uh, counterintuitively, we actually found that some of the biggest sources of microstress were people we love and care about deeply, right? And so it's not just this toxic, you know, antagonist, but but the fact that I love somebody or care about their success uh, and or feel that they're relying on me and I want to deliver, that magnifies the stress uh, as well. And so it is, you know, very much a relational look at both the, the negative and the positive ways that connections are, are affecting us. Do you think, and this might have been part of the research, but do you think that we're having more microstress now than we did 20, 30 years ago? Uh, I think that's undeniable. <laughs> you know, and, and it goes through so many trends that have happened. So organizationally, all the consulting firms have come through and they've done agile and delayering and matrix and one firm cultures and all these initiatives that have been designed to create a, a network centric organization simultaneously we've had you know uh, all these collaborative applications come into people's lives to where generally people were working across six to nine of them to get their work done uh in in most cases then you throw in globalization and time zones and cultures and other things and there's just no doubt that the collaborative footprint of work has gone up you know, 50% or more for most people in the past decade or so. And so that introduces all sorts of opportunities, right, for these connections to be generating um, small moments of, of stress. And then we've done silly things through COVID as uh, collectively, you know, pre-COVID people would typically complain about, oh my gosh, I can't get anything done. I've got eight one-hour meetings and my life's overwhelmed. And then somebody going through COVID came up with a great idea that let's do a 30-minute meeting so we can have more of them. And now we've got 16 30-minute meetings, you know, in our, in our calendars. And so we're more stressed in the moment because we have to be more focused. We're moving across these things, which we know the disruption taxes us cognitively a lot of times in ways we don't realize and we end the day with a to-do list based on 16 meetings not eight right and so um all of that you know that context there's great things right about being so hyper connected but there's also you know tremendous array of c if you will of, of small stress that occurs in in a, in a bigger way well i think people listening right now are like rob did you just look into my calendar and saw what my last few days was like with you know all these meetings we have you know, we're collaborating even more. And I guess maybe, Karen, how is that impacting our brains and how you respond to the micro stress? Is it impacting our daily lives? Like, how is this sort of starting to play out or how did you see it play out in the research? 
Well, it's really impacting our brains and you don't know and you don't know it. You don't know what's happening. I always like to say it's not your fault because you don't recognize what's happening to you. But neurologically, what's happening is these micro stresses are so brief and so fleeting that they're not imprinting on our frontal lobe the way other things do. And that means what happens is our fight or flight mechanisms that are our typical responses to stress to get our body to respond to the, the things that happen to you physiologically when you're stressed, your adrenaline rush, your heart rate goes up, things like that, your breathing escalates. Um, our body doesn't have those fight or flight mechanisms kick in, but yet we face the toll of it. So physiologically, it, the body doesn't distinguish between different forms of stress. So micro stresses that are pounding at you, you know, constantly uh, can add up to the in, in a really significant way in the same way that a major, more recognizable form of stress would. So there's really no difference. There, there's a metaphor that a neurologist we interviewed for the book um, used that I thought was really powerful. It's like when you have kids jumping on a bed, there could be one and two and three, you know, individually, those nothing's going to happen to that bed. They're little kids. You get up to 10. Okay, fine. The bed's hanging on. The 11th kid somehow just c- jumps on and the bed breaks. That's the effect of micro stress. Those are all those little things. It's still a broken bed. <laughs> At the end of the day, you, your body's tired. Your brain's tired. You've had all the physiological effects of that, um, but you didn't really realize it was happening throughout the day. And so are we downplaying these stress then in some ways saying, oh, that's not a big deal. Like you said, just kind of that's life you know, just one more thing and almost almost probably beating ourselves up for why are we stressed out? Exactly. We think we're just supposed to be able to, to do it, right? It's no big deal. You can do that. And and every single individual micro-stressor, most of us can cope with, right? And any one thing that goes wrong, an interaction that causes some, some momentary stress with someone else, um, something, you know, you leave your house in the morning and you sort of exchange curt words with your family and you feel bad for the rest of the day. Any one of those things is manageable, right? We're growing up, life gets busier, but we don't have one. We have dozens of them. And that's the reality that they they do layer up to something very significant. So yes, the answer is uh, we are downplaying them because they are very real. And it's, you know, we're talking about it as a day-to-day phenomenon, but we also would see it in stretches of times where people would kind of live three, five, eight years just slowly absorbing more and more, uh, thinking that this is what successful people do and how they get through. And then eventually um, things would, would kind of come tumbling down in different ways. And every, almost every single interview, with the exception of very, a very small subset, would, would describe moments in their lives where they'd spent three, five, eight years pursuing something, you know, in some organization only to wake up one day and say, you know, I've drifted way away from where I thought I was going to be, you know, as a, as a person. And, and it, again, it wasn't one big thing, right? It wasn't one blaring, you know, moment came out there, but this kind of accumulation of small that we, you know, like Karen said, believe we're just supposed to fight through, right? And that we can handle it and handle it and handle it until um, it, it becomes too much. You know, well, we don't want it to become too much, but you did lay out really 14 different micro stresses in three big categories. So the micro stresses categories are draining our capacity, depleting our emotional reserves, and challenging our identity. These don't feel like micro stresses. They seem a little bit bigger, but maybe help us understand the categories a little bit more and, and what's inside each of these micro stresses. So first one out, we'll, we'll kind of grab drain capacity. And those uh, for us are, um, they're the small interactions that slowly incrementally kind of decrease our ability to get done what we have to get done, you know, in a given time period. So they're coming at us from both professional and personal sides uh, in different ways. And um, they tend to take the form of small moments. And we talk about five of them in different ways. I'll give you one example that's a little more hidden sometimes than some of the others, but that's um, uh, small misses from people on your team, right? So what we saw over and over again is it wasn't one teammate that was a significant slacker and dropping the ball in a major way because 
talent process is kind of, you know, got got that taken care of, right, in different ways. What we were seeing is that people today are being staffed on five, six, sometimes seven teams. They may only be on one formally, but they're, you know, task forces, temporary efforts. And it's, it's just become a knee-jerk reaction for leaders to throw teams at everything and it's overwhelming places because they're not looking at the collaborative footprint of the work. Again, they're just kind of knee-jerk reaction doing that. So if you happen to own one of these deliverables and you have four other people on your team and they come in, you know, 95% done, so they're almost perfect, <laughs> but they're each missing 5%. It's all completely reasonable. You know, somebody had a sick child, somebody had a deadline, another person's boss pulled them in a different direction. You know, the, the conundrum there is you're, you're stuck with, do I um, make a big deal out of this or do I work through the night, right? And kind of make it up because it's not just 5% to you, it's four times 5%. Um, so that's 20% to you. And you're in this situation where most people choose to just work a little harder, get it to the level that it needs to be. But that means they're ignoring things that keep them whole to begin with or causing stress in their family lives or other things like that. And I think the real thing that was clear to us as we went through these interviews is that it, it entrains people to say, okay, 95% was okay on that one, maybe 90% the next one. And not because people are nefarious. And I really want to underscore that, right? It wasn't because, you know, people are, are you know, not good spirited. It's because 90% of the people we spoke to were, were surviving today, figuring out which balls to drop and not how to exceed, you know, expectations, right? Or where to excel. Um, and so that's one of, of the five in that category that are really pretty small moments, but that accumulate through the day and affect us because they diminish our ability to get done what we have to get done. That's a really good insight around thinking about which balls you may drop. I think that's a choice all of us have to make. We know we can't get all of it done. And so we're like, yep, this is going to have to get pushed or I'm not going to return that email today. Otherwise I wouldn't sleep or see my family or eat. Right. Cause I think there's so much on our plates. Karen, talk more about the, the second one, depleting our emotional reserves. Sure. I'll, I'll just pick one example, um, one type, one form that will be particularly relevant to your audience, I think, is managing or being feeling responsible for other people. So a microstress, if you're a manager and you care about your team and you want them to shine and maybe there's new higher ups, you're trying to make sure that they impress or you're, you have to coach them another time. It's yet again on something that they're not getting right. You want to continue to have a good relationship with them, but you're worried about that coaching. The the moments of managing other people can be an enormous like battering a microstress for any manager because because you care about them, not because you have so much to do. That falls into the first category. But that sort of emotional reserves, it just eats away at it during the day. Um, and one more I think is sort of relevant for all of us in, in this category is being exposed to, sec we call it secondhand stress. So someone around you, we've all had colleagues who kind of spray stress all the time and they share their stress with all of us. They're chicken little about every project or everything's a crisis and everything requires some closed door office, you know, heart to hearts and we, someone who just brings us all down. Um, there, there's research that suggests that just literally being exposed to social stress within two hours of eating a meal, your body will metabolize the meal that you just ate as if you ate 104 more calories than you actually ate. It, it slows down your metabolism like that. And that adds up to, if that happened to you every day, adds up to 11, you'd gain 11 pounds in a year. So again, the physiological effects of what seem like small stresses are really significant. And so these, this category are the things that just kind of chip away. You don't see them. They're not on your to-do list. They're not on your sticky notes all over your calendar, but they chip away at your kind of ability to keep going through the day because it's eating away at your emotional reserves. And those emotional reserves are really important to keep the energy up and be resilient and be focused and present. 
all of those things. Problem solving, um, again, having your own ability to focus. You know, you're just drained. It's, it's the gas in your tank. If you're just drained, you're just not going to be able to be the best you. And that's going to affect all the people that you work with and that you go home to as well. Really important point. And then the last one, which I think the first two make sense, right? I think we all feel drained. We've all felt that you know, our emotional reserves aren't there. But challenging our identity, tell us more about that. Sure. So those were, um, and, and they do progress, you know, from the more obvious to the emotional ones are, are more impactful. One thing I'd really underscore in all this work is um, the removal of a negative is really valuable. We know, generally speaking, that impact of negative interactions in our lives have typically three to five times the impact of the positive on our well-being. So just looking at things that kind of increase the positive is actually, and not decrease the negative <laughs> and shaping those interactions, actually leaving some of the highest impact uh, stuff on the table. And the emotional ones that Karen just talked to were really poignant there. The, the value ones were more the ones that snuck up on people, you know, where they woke up in this echo chamber and realized, oh my gosh, you know, what have I done the past three, five, eight years? And it could take the form certainly of, you know, having certain goals or targets that are placed on you that slowly push you to be somebody you didn't intend to be. So you're overselling in situations. Uh, you're a physician that isn't delivering the care that you got into the profession to begin with because of the pressures. You're having to treat, you know, your employees uh, in, in certain ways. Um, maybe a little more subtle one uh, that is one as well is disruptions to the networks that we're in. So a lot of times our identity and who we are is heavily shaped by the reinforcement we get from others around us, you know, as being a good parent or a good member of a religious community or a sport team or whatever it may be. Um, and then expertise wise too, what people defer to you on, right? And, and what you feel good about doing. And the problem really is kind of twofold. One is the relationships are, are shifting around us more rapidly than ever. You know, people are moving in and out of not just organizations, but work and projects. And so that creates stress in the sense of, um, you have to monitor more, not because I don't trust Karen, but because I just don't know what she's good at. You know what I mean? I don't have the same three, five years to to kind of figure that out. Or you yourself are going through a transition. And this was one of the more interesting things we would find where people would make decisions to move to another city, right? To take another job that looked great um, or get promoted up, for example. And they would just come back home and say, well, you know what? I'm not going to have a life for 12 months or 18 months, right? I'm just going to have to use this time stretch to learn the new role. And inevitably what those people would do is they would give up dimensionality in their lives that made them who they were to begin with. You know, the, the, the religious affiliation, music, sport teams, book clubs, whatever it was, um, they would progressively become smaller versions of themselves thinking we'll get back into it later. And of course they never did. Right. In contrast, what we found the people that were really good, that another 10 percenters, one of their hallmarks was they would enter a transition, not saying, how do I hunker down and get good at this one thing? But how do I become a broader version of myself? Right. And actually think, you know, in terms of how do I get these investments out into groups that are going to reinforce who I am in a broader, broader way over time. Let's double click a little bit more and talk about these 10 percenters who you interviewed who seems like they've mastered or at least are better at navigating micro-stress than others. But what can we learn from them? What, what made them special? Well, we can learn a lot from them because in our group of high performers, they were only really this, this minority who were, were living on kind of on a different plane. They were not 
felled by the micro stresses in their life, even though they had just as many as everybody else. And they, they that's what we were trying to get to the essence of what do they do differently or how do they process this differently? And they did several things differently. Um, they were better than than many of us at pushing back on some micro stresses. Um, and you talked in the beginning about um, the ability almost to steel yourself to be stronger against stress. Um, they were better at removing one or two negative ones um, that just made a huge impact on them. As Rob mentioned, there's so much research that, that suggests that a negative has up to five times the impact of adding a positive. So if you can remove a negative, you right there have have a much higher leverage opportunity to improve your ability to get through a day without so much micro stress affecting you. So that that was one thing they were they were better at than the rest of us. They also were better at checking themselves on when they were causing micro stress for other people, when they were unintentionally, it's always unintentional, usually anyway, um, triggering it for other people because of requests or communication or any of the categories we just talked about. And, and it's not just because, you know, that makes you a good guy doing that. Uh, it does, but it makes you a better guy. Um, but it's because it also will almost inevitably boomerang back on you. So the idea of being better at not causing micro stress for other people is preventing more from boomerang back back on you. Just classic example would be a star employee that you keep asking more and more of and changing what you're expecting of them. And because they're your star performer, you know they're going to rise to it. But at a certain point, they're going to they're start to be burnt out and not come through for you or think about changing jobs or just not be the, at their best self. And you're going to suffer from that too. So, so they're good at that. And then the third thing, which is the thing you're getting at is they were just better at rising above some of this um, than the rest of us. And it was through what we called building a multidimensional life. So it's not just that they have better work-life balance or they have more friends. It was that they actually actively engaged with, made meaningful connections, even in small ways with two and sometimes three sort of outside groups, groups outside or activities outside of work at home. Their lives were more fully dimensional than many of us as we go through life and make our lives smaller and smaller work and family. And, and building that multidimensional life had a, a ton of wonderful impact on pushing back or mitigating the effects of microstress. I can throw in one other thought too, just to, to build on that is that the other thing that was really intriguing to us that is that they really leveraged people and relationships for resilience. So this kind of ties back a little bit to your comment earlier about well-being. Uh, and the relational side of it, um, you know, same idea, right? We're taught that we need to be resilient. We need to have grit and fortitude and lean in. And, and it's an individual characteristic. We are resilient, right? But if you ask, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people about how they got through difficult stretches, whether it be a didn't get the promotion or my spouse died from pancreatic cancer, you know, took all spectrums um, and not what they did, but again, how and what did they get from others around them? You hear that there are eight really predictable things that people have the ability to lean back on others for, you know, for resilience in different situations. So empathy for sure, but we also can get a perspective in a situation that things aren't as bad as we think, or we can see a path forward from somebody that's been there before and how to kind of keep working through something. Uh, we can get laughter, you know, then small moments throughout the day. Uh, and so we could see, you know, in, in very specific ways that these people were um, better at, at leaning into others. They built connections as they went in a way that enabled them to perform, but also created a platform for them to, uh, to lean back on. And a really important thing that Karen just said is that it, it isn't just their best friends, right? That's the thing we were trying to get away from is most of the recommendations where you need two or three best friends, <laughs> And it's like, that takes 200 hours, roughly from beginning, you know, introduction to best friend status. 
and we don't have that time. And if you happen to have it and somebody else you want to be friends with doesn't have it, you know, the matching process may not work. It's just, it's difficult. But people were getting this resilience from a lot of places. One of our favorite interviews was a neurosurgeon that started playing guitar with a group of 20 year olds in a rock band, you know, and he said, I'm having the time of my life. I'm thinking about things differently. I'm engaging differently. And, you know, it was a form of resilience, right? They'll never be his best friends, but it was a form of resilience by thinking about the interactions that created versus, you know, just looking for two best friends. So the concept of dimensionality and having this sort of self-care and doing things kind of outside of work, right? Sort of make this very meaningful for you. It seems really important. But what do you say to people who might say, Rob, Karen, um, I don't have time for self-care. I don't have time to not even get a best friend, 200 hours. I'm barely having time to join another group for 10 hours or an hour a week, right? What do you say to those people who are pushing themselves to high performance in maybe a stereotypical way? I'll give one example in a story um, that I think the, the magic I believe and we believe of the book is that there's a lot of traction in smaller moments, right? There's a lot of impact for reducing these seemingly small micro stresses because of that three to five times the impact ratio. You know what I mean? You remove a couple, it actually has a bigger impact. And we found similar kind of leverage with our top 10 percenters. It wasn't that they were doing massive things. They weren't hiking Mount Everest or, you know, sailing the ocean, writing concertos. Um, they tended to live the small moments more authentically with others. And so one example that was really poignant was uh, we were interviewing a Silicon Valley executive, kind of mid-40s, as super type A, you know, hard charger, right, top business school. And, you know, she told us that uh, for about the first 15, 20 years coming out of school, she ran. She'd been a runner in college. And every year if she didn't get a personal best time in whatever race she was running, that would be a bad year, you know. <laughs> And so she'd entirely given up what she loved about running for society's definition of what good was, right? The better time and the, the race results. Um, and she woke up one day and said, you know, I really want to be running with my daughter, her best friend, a parent, and maybe other parents in the neighborhood, right? And so she was taking the same activity and not running as fast, but running with a group that actually created a sense of purpose and meaning for her, right, in her life. And so in this case, it was community and direct family. And that's kind of what we see. Everybody has the ability to do, right? It's not one new thing, but how do you pivot what you're already doing and find ways to use that to pull you into a group or two, right? And in ways that can have a, have a material impact. And that can be outside of work or, you know, inside work as well. But I do think that there's a lot of uh, leverage in the smaller moments uh, to, to be doing things a little bit differently. Yeah, being more present and living the smaller moments is so critical and challenging because we're pulled a lot of different directions and our devices do not help. I'm just going to make that point. Except they can, they can in small ways, in weird ways, they can be helpful. There, there were people in our research who were part of a chat with former colleagues, a chat, a group chat where jokes would go back and forth or, you know, funny memes that they, they can in small ways keep you connected with people who are part of your resilience network, right? Who knows you better than colleagues you were close to years before or your friends from college. And so there, there are some ways that they can be helpful. So yes, being not present in the moment is bad. Um, but you can also use it as a tool to be connected with people in really super micro moments um, in a way that is actually very helpful to you too. How can leaders help manage their teams and reduce micro stress? 
I'll give like a high level answer and then I know Rob has a really great, a couple of great examples of what teams have done, but just just sort of recognizing the reality of the toll that this is taking. In most teams, in most workplaces, we always add things. We never take things away. So we, we always add more meetings. Let's think of even literally being on an email chain where you never know when you get, it's okay to stop responding. Sounds good. Thumbs up. You know, I'm with you. It, it just, we, we add forms of communication. We add meetings. We add responsibilities. We never take things away. So we never think about um, setting people up to succeed and all of the interactions that happen because of all those things that we've just added. So being aware of the fact that microstress is going to make your team not its best. You know, the individuals and again, as Rob said, the things that balls are going to drop, if they're thinking that way, um, your team's already not going to be at their best, most effective, most productive, you know, never mind be a high performer. So just starting off recognizing the toll is real. And it's because there's an and culture, you know, yes, and, and then we keep adding things to do. But Rob has some really great examples, I know. Yeah, I mean, so uh, like two two things come to mind uh, along that line. One is the um, a lot of what's creating stress in teams is the collaborative intensity of the work, right? And the fact that people are navigating across typically, as I said, six to nine platforms, and they're all using those platforms differently, right? That's the core issue. It's not so much the technologies that kill us, it's the norms of use around it in the teams. So, you know, real easy thing leaders can do all the time. We've seen it go, you know, viral in organizations at a first line or manager, manager level is a very simple exercise. Take a blank piece of paper, draw two lines down and say, you have three columns. First column, say, here's all the ways we're collaborating and be comprehensive, you know, about it. Uh, second column is here's three norms for each of those ways we're going to collaborate that are positive in ways we should be using this tool versus it using us. Right. So if it's email, maybe we should be using it to confirm agreement, bullet points versus 10 paragraph text, you know, et cetera, right? whatever the norms are that are positive. The last column is what are three things we're going to stop, right? That we shouldn't be doing that's causing a negative impact uh, on our, our ability to get work done. And so that may be stop CCing after 10 o'clock at night. So you don't create this always on uh, mentality or um, uh, um, uh, CCing behavior, unnecessary CCing behavior. Um, things like that. So it's a super simple exercise that you get the leader to do it 30 minutes, take it into the team. People are laughing at the craziness we do to each other, but it just consistently gets agreement on how do we use these things. And it, uh, it takes pressure. That's one of probably 20 tools that we have, you know, running through the book on different ways that you combat it, that you can bring into uh, kind of team level life. Now I'll, I'll end with just one really cool leader that I wish we could mention his name, but I know, I don't think we have permission to do it yet. Um, but he runs a group of about 60-ish. And he literally, you know, went through these ideas with us. And then in his performance plan for this year, he had every one of his employees include things they were doing to both reduce the overwhelm or the micro stress and things they were doing to lean into the positives. That was literally part of their performance plan of how they were going to kind of take care of themselves. And I thought that was a really cool thing, right? Because people are always nervous about, oh, should I go into that? Is that, you know, over into the nanny state, whatever you want to call it. Um, But the reality is the whole human comes to work, right? And why not kind of look at it a little bit differently that way? I'll just add one more thought to that, too. I think as a leader, um, giving people permission to have the right conversations, however briefly, rather than just, you know, we have a culture of wanting to be the yes person, the I'll do it, I'm your your go-to, put me in coach. Um, but just giving people as the leader, you can do this to like push back on me if I'm asking something that's unreasonable. Th- this guy that Rob was referring to actually played 
a prank on his team where he had just reinforced to them that he wants them to be able to come to him and, and talk about when there's been an unreasonable demand or, you know, there's prioritization seems off. And so he asked them to do something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but like within 24 hours, and it was something that really was not needed. Um, and he expected them to come back and do what he had just coached them to do is come back and say, does this really need to be done before, you know, by Saturday at 9 a.m. or something? But they did They did two things. They either were just so overwhelmed, they decided it was a ball they were going to drop. They didn't do it and they weren't able to do it or they were heading down that path or they were going to go into like super heroics to try to get it done. And he stopped them before they actually did that. Say, wait, wait, this was this. I was just testing you guys. You should feel comfortable coming to me and saying, don't do it. Um, and I think the leader has to do that sometimes because though we're juggling so many balls, we almost don't even have time to realize which are the ones that I can go talk about. So the leader has to give people permission to have that conversation and, and do it themselves, recognize it themselves. Well, we need more leaders like that. Prioritization is so critical when you are leading a team to help the team understand what to get done and manage their life and not feel that stress. Um, and not a really just as in touch as it sounds like uh, this leader was. What about organizations and HR leaders? How can they help employees reduce micro stress and increase their well-being? I think one way, and we're introducing tools so, you know, people on this podcast can go out to the Apple store and, and they can download the micro stress effect app that actually allows people to go through and, and diagnose, you know, which of the one, two, three micro stresses do I want to take concerted action on? And that app is set up uh, right now in its, its V1 state to then not just convey information, but to stimulate a conversation with somebody else, right? And actually cast some prompts in it uh, and a process for people to follow that gets them to talk about, um, you know, what they can be doing to kind of take that stress down. What I would like to see, you know, as we move to a V2 with that app, as these ideas start rolling out, is to see these be team level discussions um, first around, you know, where is the stress getting created? What can we do to take it down a notch? What can we do to stop causing it? Uh, what do we need to do to invest in ourselves in ways that's going to help us rise above? Um, and I think that can be built into team conversations. So you can imagine just a very simple, you know, processing of some of these ideas and saying, let's just hold it, hold an hour discussion and or get pairs of people talking about it in ways that can uh, have an impact on culture. Um, I would also really love to see uh, anything that that you know got people to uh, to pay attention to their well-being on this relational level. Um, I think we do a tremendous amount in organizations to focus on, for example, gratitude or mindfulness or things around physical health, but we're horrible at at helping diagnose where stress is coming from in relationships or in knowing what connections matter uh, to promote well-being today. And yet the mortality rates, you know, are, are crazy bad, right? And yet we'll go chase cholesterol medications and blood pressure pills down to the ends of the earth. And yet we'll ignore something that the results show is just as important, you know, the quality of these connections uh, and how we're, how we're navigating them. I think largely because we can't measure it and see it as well yet. I think that'll evolve. But I do think that there's a lot that HR could be taking on that could have a really disproportionate effect. You know, imagine if you were in HR and you got people to take some of these ideas seriously and you were able to point to maybe a 5%, 10% drop in people going into clinical categories of care because of stress today. Not all of it, right, but just some of it um, that you could kind of take down because people were figuring out how to navigate life a little bit differently. That's a pretty cool thing to point to, you know, both morally and economically. Uh, in, in different places. Great suggestions. 
Last question for you both. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? Rob, will let you go first. I won't get the word right, but it, to me, it means growth or holistic growth of the individual. You know, I was really taken by uh, work and interactions I've been having with a colleague of mine, Tom Rath, about what if uh, organizations, you know, really measured themselves on the degree to which people came in and left as better people, right, on, on multiple dimensions uh, out there. And I think um, that really is, as we move into more of this, you know, hybrid world where talent is flowing more freely, uh, I think that really dictates a competitive advantage as, all, as well as a, you know, kind of a moral call and hopefully for places. Karen, what about you? What do you think the future of HR, how would you define that? I would say probably not a word either, but more than a few words um, is energizing. I think I think we're so we've gotten to the point where you know people are so drained by work for lots of reasons. Micro stress, you know, obviously top of our list today to talk about it. But I think finding ways for people to feel kind of intrinsically motivated and connected to other people, and find ways that they leave work feeling good and energized about the day versus drained by the day. I think that's going to be really important, and I think that's going to make people choose to stay in positions and with companies or not. I think that's where we're going to see people making decisions that are about how do they intrinsically feel about being part of this group of colleagues. And even when we mentioned earlier, the fact when a, a micro stress is when this, you change your network of people, um, that's a really big deal to your self-identity. We, we work with so many different people that we don't, it's not we distrust them, it's just we haven't had time to build up trust with them. And I think until we get back to those places where the relationships feel good and energizing and productive and we're doing co-creating things together and people feel good about coming into work, I think uh, we have to be worried about the drain in every, in every form of that, of that word. Well, Robin Karen, thank you for coming on the Future of HR podcast. The book is The Micro-Stress Effect. I think everyone needs to read this book. We need stress, less stress in our lives. Terrific research and what a terrific conversation today. Thank you again for being on the podcast. Thank you, JP. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Rob and Karen for their terrific insights on how micro stress is impacting our lives and what to do about it. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and share our podcast with one other person. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps us with our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with a special episode featuring Angela Lane and Sergey Gorbatov, co-authors of the terrific book, Fair Talk, Three Steps to Powerful Feedback. Both Angela and Sergey are experts on giving and receiving feedback in our conversation, we go deep on how to design and execute effective mid-year conversations and reviews. If you're an HR leader who's preparing for mid-year conversations, and I'm pretty sure we all are, then you will not want to miss this episode, which is full of actionable ideas you can implement this year. Thanks again for listening to the Future of HR and being part of our community.